Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and today I have a special guest, Dr. Eric Trexler. Uh, This is his second time coming on the show. He is a coach, a researcher. He is uh, one of the head honchos over at Stronger by Science, which is an extremely well-known company in the evidence-based community that puts out an enormous amount of content, the most in-depth content I've probably ever seen. Uh, their, their articles are sometimes 20,000 plus words or like mini eBooks, which is amazing. It's such a good research for coaches. Um, and he's a really, really influential figure in the evidence-based community. He's one of the guys that runs mass research review is one of the best research reviews. In my opinion, uh, it's my go-to source for all studies pertaining to body composition, powerlifting, supplementation, nutrition, everything that really matters in regards to the type of coaching we all do. Uh, So this is his second round. Last time we talked about metabolic adaptation. It was a really hot topic and and a pretty new topic when we first spoke. It was about two years ago, I think I had him on the podcast. So it's been a while, but we've been in touch ever since. And this is just a good chance for us to catch up and dive into some new and updated topics that he's been diving into as far as the research goes. So today we're going to discuss a little bit about periodization for hypertrophy and whether or not that even matters. We're going to talk about P ratio um, and everything pertaining to that. There was some research that came out on that. There's a lot of debates on whether P ratio even matters right now. And and I'm going to let him explain exactly what that is and why that matters to you when you are somebody searching for more muscle and less fat. And then we dive into insulin sensitivity, which is a hot topic. And a lot of bros and bodybuilders really push a lot of focus on this. And they, they market and hype up a lot of supplements to improve insulin sensitivity. But the truth is, is the research is just not that convincing that it matters that much in regards to the everyday person looking for changes in their body composition. Does not mean for health, it's not important to, to be insulin sensitive but uh, it's, it's overblown quite a bit, and, and we're going to break that down and explain what it actually is, what actually changes your insulin sensitivity, and how uncommon insulin resistance actually is. So everything you need to know about that. But we dive into a lot here. There are only three topics, but we went over an hour. Uh, so we went de- in, in a lot of depth with these. So you're going to get a lot of these. I would grab a pen and paper because... He refers to a lot of research. He describes a lot of strategies. We just go deep with everything. So I think you're going to need to write down and take some notes on this one. Um, but if you want to check out more from Eric Trexler, you can see him on Instagram at Trexler Fitness. I'm going to link that in the show notes of this podcast. You can head over to Stronger by Science to check out his more in-depth content. Um, Google search Mass Research Review, and you'll see a bunch of stuff regarding their research review group and website and, and subscription. Um, and of course, if you like this podcast, do me a huge favor, share it on Instagram, post it on your Instagram story, tag myself at Cody McBroom, tag Eric at Trexler Fitness. We want to thank you for listening and we want to share it on our story as well. So without any further ado, let's get into this interview with the one and only Dr. Eric Trexler. All right, Eric, I'm excited to have you on the podcast, man, because uh, a few reasons. One, last time I had you on, which we will touch on this a little bit, uh, metabolic adaptation was like very very uh scary to everybody it was like uh it was something you got you came down with you came down with the metabolic adaptation and uh it was cool because you came on and you really gave it and it was like the first enlightened uh coverage of that on at least my podcast and I've had so many people on that have brought it up and I've had so many questions from clients and everybody so I'm excited to touch on some of those things but we also I got the chance to coach with you so you ran me through a full year of training and nutrition um and I want to say I put on 16 pounds during that year which for somebody who's been lifting a decade 
was the most I've gained successfully for a long time. And it was just really cool to get to know you through that process. And we've taken some time uh, since then. And now we get to hash it out on a podcast to cover some topics. So, man, I'm excited to have you on. This is going to be really good. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm excited. Uh, it'll be great to catch up. And uh, regarding the 16 pounds you gained, I actually didn't sweat at all throughout the whole process. So I, I think you might give me more credit for that than I deserve. But yeah, it, it was awesome working together. And yeah, I was really happy with what you were able to accomplish during that time. Yeah. It, you know, what was really cool about it too, is I, I was able to use a lot of the experience there with my own content about a lot of things that I preach um, specifically with consistency and not changing too many things too often. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, a people's problem. Um, but it was a good for me to go into it and, and show and kind of live by example and look, look, I signed up for a year. And I mean, we really didn't change that much in the grand scheme of things. It was really just like reminding me to stay consistent and, re and you did a really good job. And this is a good tip for coaches. Um, and, and I'd love your feedback on this too, obviously for them to learn, but um, constantly shining light on all the little things that I was quote unquote doing well, or what was going well to remind me like, dude, we're in, we're in a good lane. Like just, just keep going, just keep going, you know, and, and a year's a long time, but it helped a ton to get through that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I like to uh, adjust things frequently but i don't like to implode and reassemble things very frequently you know i like to make sure that we find a trajectory where we're we're moving things along really smoothly and then manage that you know so like a lot of times with clients you know we'll go from training block to training block and they're like why don't i have a completely different assortment of exercises and it's like because we spent the first three training blocks really triangulating what exercises were responding well to and which ones really work for you. And so uh, can you, can you imagine the frustration of, you know, you spend all this time trying to figure out what's working, what's not working. You find something that's going smoothly. And then you say, well, what if we start from scratch and pretend we didn't learn any of that stuff previously, you know, like that, that's not a good process, but I think sometimes a lot of coaches feel like they have to show their, um, their versatility and kind of say, oh, I can give you a completely different approach to what we're doing. And then I can give you another completely different approach to what we're doing. And versatility is important, but, but ultimately at the end of the day, it's about getting on the right trajectory and then maintaining that trajectory. And so highlighting the small wins along the way is really helpful in feeding that and supporting that. And ultimately the, you know, the, the proof's in the pudding, right? So um, you don't dazzle people by, uh, remarkably creative programming, you dazzle them by results. So one of the, I, I had a, another client a couple months ago who uh, the clients that always bring me the most joy are the people that are hard gainers or, or the people who have struggled. And they're like, I've tried uh, losing fat a million different ways and it's never worked. The people who feel like they're, they're like, no, I've, I've really met my limitations and my constraints and I cannot budge past it in one direction or the other. When I have a client like that and we can push past what used to be kind of a hard limit, to me, that's the most rewarding. That's the most fulfilling part of it. So I, I had a client the other day who same kind of deal. We haven't done anything too groundbreaking or too remarkable. The biggest thing is that I programmed that individual's loads very differently than I program for any of my other clients. So we spent the first couple blocks trying to figure out what is a good way for me to program your loads that ensure 
progressive overload without having a demotivating effect, you know, because if I get too ambitious with it uh, and we're not seeing those increments week over week, then that that can have a demotivating effect. So, yeah, I, I had a client the other day when we first started working together, he's like, dude, I just I always plateau rapidly after, you know, a couple months. And we've just, we've worked together, we've collaborated, communicated, uh, been only as creative as we need to. And the other day he's like, dude, I can't believe I'm still making progress. Like I, I've never been this far into an approach and still made progress. So that's, that's the stuff for me that, that is really awesome is when you've got someone who's like, you know, I maybe have five or 10 pounds left to gain before we kind of tap it out. And then it's like 15 pounds later, you know, we're still moving, which is always yeah. cool. I mean, that was me. I was like, dude, I've been doing this for a while. So I'd be happy with a few pounds, <laughs> you know? And Right. And um, yeah, I mean, and, and once again, like I didn't do anything too creative. It, it's just observation and communication, right? So if you're a coach, th there's nothing you're going to find. It, there's not like some secret uh, body of research out there where you're like, oh, that that's the one technique I've been missing in my coaching. But it's a lot of, are you able to observe and have the steady hand of knowing when it's time to change, when it's not time to change. And can you pick up on the little things along the way that are actually good signs? You know, if you're not observing and communicating, you're going to miss the indicators that you're actually on the right path. And, and so if you miss those indicators, you implode the program, you, you kind of treat it like, you know, like Mad Libs, where you just grab a verb and grab an adjective. You, it's like you just implode the program and grab some of this and some of that, throw it together and see if you just kind of, you know, catch this magic combination. So it's, it's the steady hand, the patience, the observation and the communication, you know, and I, I think um, that's the biggest thing is that I, I communicate a lot with my clients. Yeah, it's huge. And I think, because if anyone was to ask me, even what I specifically do with my clients, you know, progressive overload, the repeat about effect, like doing the same things over long enough to actually see that progress and then make the subtle and right adjustments, like you said, but when you're doing it week after week after week, I think the key in not getting bored and wanting to change it is those, those little pieces of communication of, of highlighting what's going well, because, you know, training is fun, but results are like, they're really fun. And that's what we're after. Right. So yeah, I think doing the same thing and then being able to point out like, no, dude, like you added a rep here and you added a little bit of weight here and, and your notes right here. And it's like, oh, actually, damn, I am getting better. Like, that's really cool. So I want to do it again next week. And then, like you said, that's the motivation to keep that consistency and not change too much. Yeah. And I mean, it, you know, at the end of the day, uh, if your main purpose for hiring a coach is to have workouts that are just subjectively enjoyable, no one knows what workouts you enjoy more than you do. You yeah. know, so like, uh, you know, no coach out there is going to guess what you think is fun better th than you can put together ultimately you're getting the coach for the results, you know? Um, and, and so, and you know, you know, when I coach, of course, I have a ton of value on the subjective training experience. So anytime I design a new block of training, we touch base and I say, what do you want to see in the next block? What do you want to avoid in the next block? Uh, so I'm always, the workouts have to be enjoyable because if they're not enjoyable, they're not effective because you're not going to do them. Or, or if you do them, you're not going to have the enthusiasm to really put in that focused effort that's required. So it's not that we ignore the subjective experience, but the goal is to make the training as effective as possible while also being really enjoyable. Yeah. 
Uh, you know, this is this is not something I had listed, but it's a good thing to bring up because um, I was talking to Brandon about it yesterday. And uh, I think there's a lot of different opinions on this in general. Um, and obviously, I have my own. And he he dug up a bunch of research when we did this Q&A, but periodization for hypertrophy. You know, I think that it's what I've seen coming out of the, I mean, mass is always somewhere I go. Like, yeah, I actually read something on uh, reverse linear periodization and on paper, it looked like the thing. I was like, dude, that's actually perfect for hypertrophy. You're going to accumulate volume. And then I, of course, I go right to mass and I go on the search bar and I'm like, let's see if they've done anything on this. And uh, Helms wrote something up and it was actually subpar to linear. And it like didn't quite make sense at first. And then as I started digging through it, I'm like, okay. But I think ultimately what I'm seeing a lot of you guys say, it, it's that it almost doesn't matter as much as we think, especially not as much as strength. And I think and it maybe it's not that it doesn't matter, but it, I think it's less complex than people think. Um, yeah, because planning is important, you know, deload, plan ahead, so on and so forth. But periodization for hypertrophy, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, we actually talked about this on our podcast a while ago. We had like a listener question, which is, you know, what periodization technique should I use specifically for bodybuilding? So mm -hmm. body composition focused training. And, you know, my answer was, it's really not that complicated for bodybuilding and and the, the the real substance of the answer actually takes you back to like why did we bother with periodization in the first place and the reason that anyone's ever cared about periodization it comes from the sports performance world it, it, you know it comes from athletes who needed to develop and maintain and cultivate several different uh aspects of physical capability right so if, if you talk to a team sport athlete in a lot of different contexts they need to have endurance they need to have power you know explosive power they need to have strength in some instances they need to be able to uh, change direction quickly uh, so in some sports you find these athletes that need to cultivate and maintain so many different physical capacities and capabilities at different times through the year and they, oh, by the way, they also have to practice their sport, right? So they actually have to go in and play whatever they play. And so periodization largely was like, okay, over the course of a year, how are we going to make sure that you are ready to compete when the season begins and peaking when it matters most in the season? And so you have to balance how much of it is weight training, how much of it is conditioning, how much of it is sport practice. And of course, those are going to vary throughout the year. And when sport practice and conditioning ramp up, then obviously it's going to cut into your time that you can dedicate to weight training, but also your recovery capacity for weight training. So then you start shifting toward lower volume, higher intensity approaches with greater sport specificity. Uh, so that's where a periodization comes from. And then when you look at the, the context of a bodybuilder or someone who's just training to I don't say, I say just to, but, um, you know, that's what I train for. So I'm not diminishing it, but from a person who's training purely to enhance their physique, there aren't that many different rabbits that we need to chase. Like they're not that many different things we need to cultivate. It's, you know, we want to build, uh, muscle mass, you know, we want to watch our diet so we don't accumulate excessive amounts of body fat. Some is fine, but you know, we don't want to make the next cut or, or the next fat loss phase harder than it needs to be. So there's a lot to manipulate on the diet side, but on the training side, we're just trying to induce hypertrophy. And I think there, are, you can make a case that it's good to have some strength focus blocks mixed in there. 
largely because it's a good indicator of progress along the way. And it's a good way to mix things up a little bit. You know, it can be really enjoyable to say, of course, we're, we're training for hypertrophy mostly, but let's really push our squat here and see what we can do. Let's really push our bench press and see what we can do. It allows you to assess progress over time based on strength gains, uh, but it also gives you a little bit of variety in your training so that it stays fresh. Cause like, I mean, you know how it is it, it whether or not it's the most effective thing out there. If you just told somebody great news, three sets of 10 on these key exercises, and then do it till you die. <laughs> that's not very fun. Right. And then, like you mentioned, the, the, the thing that really comes into play with, uh, this isn't is more programming than periodization. If you want to make the distinction, but of course we have to manage, uh, fatigue both in the short term and the long term. So we have to arrange our training sessions, uh, in ways that they are sufficient for inducing training adaptations, but also designed in a way that we can recover session to session. And then as we start to really accumulate some fatigue over the course of a training block at a certain point, we have to have some reduced workload, whether it's a deload or some other type of uh, creative restructuring that allows us to fully recover and keep things fresh and, and kind of emphasize recovery. But you know, complex periodization. I, I just don't, uh, I don't think the need is, is really critical there. Is there any, I know, like, I totally agree with implementing strength blocks, especially from just to change things up. Um, and then there's the old saying of like, uh, a bigger muscle is a stronger muscle, right. To put it simply. Yeah. But is a stronger munch muscle, does a stronger muscle have the potential to become a bigger muscle compared to a, a not, does that make sense? And like, I know yeah. there's even the, popular idea of uh, desensitization, right? Taking a yeah. strength block to sensitize hypertrophy, which I didn't know how much I bought into. And I want to say Krager put it in the volume Bible thing he wrote up. So I didn't know if there was actual research on that, but what are your thoughts on all, all of that side of it? Yeah. So this is a, a topic that has been a, a pretty big hobby horse of uh, Greg, Greg Knuckles, uh, my, my business partner. Um, and I know that he's been looking pretty intently at the research that relates to that question. And, uh, you know, the more we discuss it, the more I'm convinced, you know, there, there's good evidence out there that a bigger muscle, uh, has the potential to be a stronger muscle, you know? So there, there is a distinction between muscle size and muscle strength, but of, of course, having bigger muscles, once you, uh, you know, train for a specific strength related task, you have, you have a bigger engine, you've got a bigger motor there, right? So I think that's pretty straightforward. Although there, there are some people who disagree. Uh, but I'm quite convinced of that, but I'm not yet convinced of the opposite direction. So I think there can be value of having strength blocks in uh, the programming of someone who's focused on hypertrophy, but I don't think we have enough evidence to, to very flatly say, if you get stronger in this block, you're going to carry that strength over and it's going to enhance your hypertrophy potential in the next block. Rather, I think, like I said, those strength blocks, uh, can be useful. They can be enjoyable. They can allow you to switch things up a little bit. Um, they can keep training uh, novel and fun and variable from block to block. There are benefits of having that in there. Um, and you can have those strength blocks that are perfectly suitable for supporting hypertrophy, right? So if, if you think about focusing on 
you know, a higher strength emphasis on like a bench press uh, block, you know, you're really going to focus on your bench press it, it, by tweaking the set and rep scheme. And by tweaking the accessory volume, you're not sacrificing anything there. You can still have a, a strength focused block for an exercise that is very conducive to hypertrophy as much so as previous blocks and subsequent blocks that are explicitly hypertrophy focused. Um, so you don't lose anything by incorporating these strength blocks. Is there some potential that the strength carries over and enhances hypertrophy? Maybe. I, I don't think there's convincing evidence of that yet, but I see the incorporation of those strength blocks as uh, a strategy that has some potential upside and really no clear downside. So, so I do encourage people to, uh, at, at the minimum, feel free to incorporate those types of blocks without feeling like you're sacrificing anything. Yeah. I mean, not to use me again, but it's a good, easy example that we're both uh, familiar with. I think there was one point where I was like, dude, I'd love to bench and squat heavy. And it was like, cool, let's throw some lower reps there. But it wasn't like we need to take time away from hypertrophy because it was still working, you know? And, and I yeah. think I want to say there was a research, uh, a, a paper you guys did in mass. I think it was Greg again, um, kind of like the whole shock the muscle thing. Right. And it was, it was diving into that. And I want to say they took, uh, the only where uh, time they saw where they switched training dramatically and saw an initial increase in hypertrophy that was pretty significant was taking Olympic lifters who had never done anything but Olympic lift and put them on a bodybuilding program. Um, and the way I looked at it was like, if you've been doing the same thing for years and you make a dramatic change, I think they're regardless of what the change is, I think you're going to see a significant effect. Um, but for most people, that's just not the case. And it probably would be different if you were doing hypertrophy for all those years, you know, you're not, especially with a skill related sport, like Olympic lifting, obviously. But um, so to me, I think it's just, it's such a longer scale than, than what people think. Cause a lot of people will even say like after every 12 to 16 weeks, you need to have a strength block. And I don't know if that's, I think that's a little bit too much. It's overkill. Yeah. I don't know if I'd ever use the term need there. Yeah. Um, if their goal is hypertrophy, but, but like I said, I think it can be implemented in a way that is effective, involves no meaningful sacrifices in terms of the efficacy of the program. So, like I said, I think people should feel welcome to incorporate strength blocks if their main goal is hypertrophy, but I don't think we can necessarily say it's necessary or that it's inherently better than not doing it. So I, I think, uh, you know, keeping a variety of hypertrophy focused, uh, set and rep schemes and, you know, varieties of exercise selection that alone should be sufficient. And, uh, the, the nice thing there is if you like training for strength, you can achieve exceptional hypertrophy on a strength focused program. Um, but if you're training for hypertrophy and you don't like the heavier, lower rep stuff, then you don't need to incorporate it. There's no necessity there. So I, the thing I really like is, I mean, obviously the, the evidence dictates the practice uh, in terms of what we should be doing with training and nutrition. But I, I personally am very relieved when I see situations like this, where the, the end user, uh, the coach or the, uh, or the client can feel welcome to use a strategy, uh, and it is not inherently better or worse than alternative strategies because it gives us a way that we can tailor the program to somebody and make sure that it's enjoyable and the subjective training experience is really positive. Um, and we have multiple different routes we can take to get to the same destination, which is ultimately hypertrophy. So, uh, you know, th there's all sorts of research looking at, you know, what if I do 
you know, three sets of eight versus, you know, six sets of three or whatever, you know, looking at different uh, volume equated programs where some are more in the hyper, the classic hypertrophy range and some are more in the classic strength range. And as long as you're, you know, putting similar amounts of tension on the muscle, as long as you're, you know, equating that volume over time, they're both very viable routes toward robust hypertrophy, which is awesome. It, it gives you the freedom to put together a program that both works and is enjoyable. Mm, I love that. Um, that's perfect. I think that's a good answer. It's, it's the whole conversation is similar to what Brandon and I kind of came up with yesterday too. Mine was much more of like what I've seen and experienced and his was much more like based on research, obviously. Um, and for lack of a better transition, because that wasn't even something that I was going to bring up today. Um, I do want to, I want to dive into P ratio next. And I think uh, this is something that you've, I don't know how many times you've probably talked about it at this point. Um but it, it came up recently and, and I would love to hear why it became a debate, like where, where that started and, and obviously define for the listeners to what P ratio is. I haven't really touched this on the podcast, but briefly, yeah. um, but you've put out a lot of great content on it. Um, and then you did a debate roundtable style thing for Jeff Nippard's podcast, which I'll link in the show notes because for those listening, it was a great discussion. Um, and I'd love to just get your thoughts. I think it, it changed my mind on a few things and it changed a lot of like uh, bro ideas that have been around for a long time. Um, but can you explain what P ratio is, why this all came about and why it's been such a hot topic for you lately? Yeah. Yeah, of course. So P ratios basically describe um, kind of the, the simplified definition is the proportion of weight that is gained or lost as lean mass, right? And so the simplified look at it is, let's say you gain 15 pounds, you're trying to really add some muscle mass. Well, if a lot of those 15 pounds is, you know, lean mass or muscle tissue and very minimal fat gain occurs throughout the process, you have a high P ratio. So if you gain 15 pounds and 13 of it is, is lean mass, that's a really high proportion of lean mass that was gained relative to total weight gain. So that, that's a high P ratio. And so you think high P ratio sounds good. Well, in weight gain, yes, but in weight loss, it's actually the opposite. So if you lose 15 pounds and 13 pounds of it is lean mass, that's a terrible P ratio. Uh, you know, a high P ratio during weight loss uh, is not a good thing. So that's what a P ratio is. And the reason, so, so we wrote, uh, you know, mass is our research review. We put it out every month and I saw, uh, a study that had something to do with this. And so the reason this all started was I was just reviewing a study. Uh, and, you know, I was um, say, I was like, Oh, cool. This is a thing that's become a popular concept in the evidence-based fitness space. Here's a good opportunity to write about it. And so I kind of just started with a blank slate, looked at the evidence. And what's really interesting about this topic is there was this kind of it's kind of like bro science perspective way back in the day, which was got to eat big to get big, you know? And it's like, uh, there was the, this one article about weight gain and it was like, dude, just eat a huge pizza every night and put any kind of oil on it as long as it's not motor oil. Right. And so like, there's this huge thing. It was like, if you want to gain any muscle at all, you need to eat like 6,000 calories and get enormous. So that was the initial like bro science perspective. Um, and then the, the evidence-based fitness world came in and said, no, 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 uh, based on evidence, you know, if you have high body fat, 
relatively speaking, then that is going to impair insulin sensitivity. It's going to cause all this inflammation. It's actually going to blunt your ability to put on muscle tissue. So if you want to gain muscle, you actually have to stay lean enough to keep insulin sensitivity high and to prevent any uh, inflammation associated with excess body fat. And I think one of the reasons that this little article kind of took off into more of a debate and they're like, there were like camps that formed was because I think it was one of those rare instances where the kind of very enlightened evidence-based perspective actually lacked evidence. Mm. And that is, you know, cause you know, there's, you don't have to look far on Instagram to see like the myth busting angle toward fitness. And there is value to that because myths persist because a lot of people believe them. So I think what, what I don't want to diminish the people who like their content strategies. I want to enlighten people on these myths that are common, but false. Like, but, but a lot of those myths are like low hanging fruit. It's like stuff that we all agree on. It's pretty self-evident, but a lot of people who aren't into fitness don't know it. And so people have to make that content. That's a good thing. I think the thing about this particular topic was that it was not low hanging fruit. It was a concept that was being kind of presented as very nuanced and evidence-based. But when I was writing the article, starting from a blank slate, I looked into the underlying evidence and it just wasn't that strong and it wasn't that relevant. And so, so basically, you know, we, we looked into it and said, if this is true, so if excess body fat is giving you a worse P ratio, um, you know, so per unit of weight gained, you're gaining less muscle because you have really high uh, or, or really low insulin sensitivity. And so the nutrients are being shuttled away from muscle and toward fat cells, or because you have all this inflammation that is blunting hypertrophy. So then any over uh, any caloric surplus, it's not going to be promoting hypertrophy. So it just goes to fat cells instead. If those things are true and they matter. So if, if the effect exists and is big enough to actually matter and materialize in the real world, there should be lines of research where it's observable, right? So like, I'm a bit of an empiricist. If you tell me that something exists and matters, and it's been measured a million different times in research, then I'm of the perspective, you should be able to find it. You know, you should be able to identify the observations where this actually pans out in the real world. And so we started the uh, process of exploring this research and saying, well, if we look at an American football team and the whole team goes through an off-season program, do the linemen with high body fat have worse P ratios or do they have blunted hypertrophy when compared to the wide receivers and the defensive backs who have low body fat? Uh, when we look at, you know, we looked at the literature on sumo wrestlers as they progress into the higher uh, levels of the sport of sumo, and they get older, you know, as they longitudinally work their way up the sport, do we see that there's any evidence of an impairment of P ratios or a blunting of hypertrophy? Basically, do they get to a point in body fat level where all the gains they're making beyond that is pretty much fat mass because, you know, because of these uh, mechanisms involved. So when we try to look at these different indirect areas of research, we we couldn't find anything that would support this idea of these P ratios really 
mattering and impacting, uh, or, or, you know, the idea that high body fat impairs P ratios or blunts hypertrophy. We just couldn't find it. And, you know, even other areas of research, if you try to find the literature on the most muscular athletes on the planet who are presumably drug free, they almost exclusively have high body fat levels. So it seems really counterintuitive to indicate that high body fat blunts hypertrophy by messing with insulin sensitivity or inflammation. So that was where we started was just looking at all this indirect evidence. And we kind of put a case together and people said, no, it's too indirect. You know, it's, it's not, it's not truly looking at the topic at hand. You're trying to take these indirect observations and kind of form a narrative from them. And so we actually said, all right, like, let's, let's really do this. So we gathered up data, like the raw individual level data from, I think seven studies that looked at hypertrophy over time. And we knew people's body composition at baseline and we knew it at post-testing. So we could actually say in a standardized resistance training program over time, did the people who started with higher body fat actually have worse changes in body composition over the course of the standardized program? And what we found was quite the opposite. So people who began these interventions with higher body fat gained extremely similar amounts of lean mass and muscle mass. The only difference was they had larger reductions in fat mass, which is very intuitive. Uh, you know, I, I think most people would be on board with the idea that if you're starting a resistance training program with high body fat, probably have a, a greater capability of recomping or basically losing some body fat as you gain muscle. Uh, you know, the body in that, in that situation is in a state of uh, really high energy availability. There's no reason to think that if you have a slight calorie deficit going that, you know, with all the reserves of, of excess adipose tissue, your body's going to shut down anabolic processes, right? So what we found was the opposite. Their P ratios were actually better not because they had better hypertrophy, but because they had the same hypertrophy and they were just losing some fat along the way. Um, and so we felt that that was a pretty straightforward way of looking at the evidence. And when we looked at, you know, athletes, you know, does, does high body fat seem to impair muscle growth? Doesn't look like it indirectly. When we looked at these controlled trials on a standardized resist resistance training program, did high body fat at baseline seem to impair P ratios or impair hypertrophy? Uh, the answer was no. And so we felt pretty satisfied by that. And when you look at the evidence that allegedly supports this P ratio idea, it is uh, quite unrelated. Uh, and so that to me, that was the most eye-opening thing was when I tried to find evidence to kind of contradict what we were seeing. You know, a lot of it was like, there is a study that purported to, to measure hypertrophy and it was, they used DEXA and the resistance training program was like six days long, you know, and like DEXA is nowhere near sensitive enough to measure anything resembling hypertrophy over a six day period. If one can really achieve appreciable hypertrophy over a six day period. But basically it was people in their seventies and eighties who were being acutely hospitalized because they were they didn't like opt into a study in a hospital. They were hospitalized because they were very, very sick uh, and in their seventies and eighties. And so basically what we were seeing there was just like, who is the most ill person in this sample who has the highest inflammation, which is fully unrelated to their body fat level. So like 
a lot of the studies that were being used to say high body fat impairs hypertrophy via inflammation, they were just studies about inflammation. And the people with high inflammation didn't have higher body fat than the people with low inflammation in these studies. They were just people who had inflammation for either unknown reasons or reasons related to illness or reasons related to aging, because uh, inflammation does increase as we age. So even the studies that were being used to support this made no direct link between the body fat level and the impairment of hypertrophy. It was this kind of really uh, roundabout argument where it's like, well, if you have high body fat, then you might have higher inflammation. And if you do have high inflammation related to your body fat, and that's not resolved due to training, which it probably will be attenuated if you're healthy and active in training, then we can assume that that high inflammation from studies on hospitalized people will apply to, yeah, it, it just wasn't a very direct line of, uh, of argument. And so if you're interested in getting into like the really nitty gritty details, we wrote a series of three articles on this, the first presenting our case and then a rebuttal and then another rebuttal. Cause you know, um, people kind of pushed back a little bit, um, you know, and, and, you know, we were happy to keep going deeper and deeper into, into the numbers, but I would encourage people to check out the series of articles. Cause I, I think when you look at the totality of the evidence, it's really hard to walk away from it and say, oh, definitely body fat makes it hard to grow muscle or impairs your, your P ratio. And, you know, even if you want to look at it, uh, in a longitudinal perspective, you know, we do have studies where people lose weight and then regain weight. Uh, that's like an entire kind of sub body of research. And so theoretically, if this P ratio thing works out, you know, someone should lose weight, they should lose body fat. And then when they regain weight, subsequently, they should gain theoretically a higher proportion of lean mass than they lost, right? They're, they're gaining weight from this new body composition point where they are leaner and, you know, theoretically have better insulin sensitivity and lower inflammation levels because they've lost this fat mass. So theoretically, yo-yo dieting and weight cycling should be a really effective and really time efficient strategy if this P ratio thing holds up. And of course, when we look at the literature, we find that not only does that fail to hold up, but the opposite is true. When people lose weight and then rapidly regain it or even slowly regain it. The composition of the weight that's regained is typically either similar uh, to what was lost, or it actually, they have a worse P ratio when they're regaining that weight that was lost. Does this, uh, and I kind of imagine it wouldn't, but does it change the way you do anything with the average natural athlete that you're working with? And because from the, from my perspective, it's almost like, well, we already didn't want to get fat while trying to yeah. gain lean muscle. And I don't think you're now saying, oh, actually we can totally get fat. So let's get fat in the process. But um, on top of that, if you're gaining too much body fat, it's hard to see an appreciable amount of the result of the work you're doing. And I think that can be frustrating for people. It's like, am I really even putting on muscle? Um, but it's also to say like, you don't have to worry about it so much, but does it change the way you go about anything? Or is it just kind of give you a different context to your recommendations? Well, there's a couple reasons why we felt this was an important conversation. Um, one at like the highest level is if the entire evidence-based fitness community embraces an idea because it feels nice, but isn't based on evidence, 
it kind of undermines the whole purpose of having an evidence-based fitness community. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we kind of have to have that gut check every once in a while and say, are we all agreeing on this because there's evidence for it or because it feels intuitive? And if it's because it, it feels intuitive, then we can, we can pack up and go home. There's, there's really no point um, because everyone who's making recommendations thinks that intuitively their recommendations are good. It's just do you hold yourself to a standard of evidence or not? Uh, so that's the, the first thing is we, we have to keep ourselves honest if we're going to say this is an evidence-based recommendation. Now, the other thing is there are some circumstances where believing this concept without evidence has been counterproductive for some folks. Uh, so for example, there are a lot of people who compete as, you know, uh, they compete in sports where having high body fat is common. You know, you, you can think of a, uh, a thrower in track and field. You can think of a lineman in American football. You can think of a heavyweight, super heavyweight lifter in a lot of sports. There are a lot of people who are unnecessarily restricting their, their, uh, their, their ability to keep progressing because they feel like if they gain any more body fat, it's going to start impairing their performance or their ability to gain muscle. And in reality, they, they could be uh, doing quite the opposite. They could be impairing their development as a super heavyweight lifter because they're worried about getting, you know, just a little bit of additional fat gain. So that that's one instance. Uh, but another instance is, and this is the one that's most uh, critical in my, in my mind, uh, you ever had somebody who signs up for coaching and they tell you they're a hard gainer? Uh, of course. Right. It's a common thing. Mm-hmm. When I have that conversation with someone who signs up, uh, and actually the client I mentioned previously, who's like, I can't believe I'm still making progress. When, when they signed up, they said, I plateau rapidly and I'm a hard gainer. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, so what do you weigh now? Give, give, give me a number. And I say, have you ever weighed more than that? And they say, oh yeah, I, I often get up to about five pounds heavier than that. But every time I do, my body composition's terrible, so I cut. Uh, and I'm like, so are you unable to gain weight, or do you refuse to let yourself gain weight? And it's almost always the latter. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, there are some people who th- their appetite is just shot if they gain weight. That's a different scenario. But I know all these. I know a lot of people who. They're like, oh, no, I mean, I, I can't gain any weight. And I say, well, what happens when you gain weight? I immediately make myself lose it. And I say, why? And they're like, well, because obviously if you gain any fat, then you can't gain muscle anymore. And I'm like, well, let's just take a leap of faith here. And let's say we're going to gain 15 pounds. Let's say we're going to gain 20 pounds. And if we don't like what we see, we can bail. But like at least commit to 10, Right. And so what I find is there were a lot of people who heard this concept spoken in a very confident way, very matter of factly and said, listen, if you're, if you're gaining fat, it's getting between you and your hypertrophy goals. And they were not allowing themselves to be in a caloric surplus for any appreciable amount of time. And they weren't achieving the hypertrophy they were setting out to achieve. They had basically tapped out their ability to recomp at their current body composition and they would benefit substantially from a caloric surplus over a stretch of time. And unfortunately, I think this particular idea, because some people were pushing this, this concept and saying, you got to stay under like 12% body fat, like 15% body fat. And if you go to 13, if you go to 16, you know, hypertrophy is off the table at that point. 
And I'm being a little bit hyperbolic, but that's how people were perceiving it and, and actually implementing it. And so there are a lot of people out there who were clinging to these really arbitrary numbers that were being treated as evidence-based specific cutoffs and saying, well, I, I can't gain weight because every time I do, I pass this barrier and then I have to cut weight. Uh, and so I think a lot of people have benefited from just saying, you know what, you know what, I'm just going to gain some weight, try to get really strong in the process, do a whole bunch of training and, you know, fairly typical hypertrophy rep ranges. And let's just see what happens. And lo and behold, when that plays out, you find out that the proportion of hard gainers in the population is a lot lower than, than it used to seem. So I think a lot of people were limiting their long-term development as a lifter based on what seemed to be an evidence-based concept that really lacked a lot of evidence. I can even relate to that in a sense, not necessarily because I thought I was a hard gainer, but more so being in the fitness community um, and running a fitness business and in, in the, you know, in my mind, like I have to be a representation of what my company and all my coaches are. So I, I prefer to stay lean, but it would be the same thing. It would just, you would get close to a certain point and then you'd pull back down. Right. And it wasn't because I didn't think I could, but it's just, I just didn't have the accountability. Hence why I was like, all right, dude, yeah. I'm just going to pay for a full year. So I'm locked in. Like, let's just get past that point because I need to. Um, and we see this with women all the time too. They'll, they'll cut. They're not satisfied with what they get to at the end because they probably just don't have enough muscle to get the look they want. Um, they gain right back up to where they were, but never any further. They don't spend time there trying to go into surplus and build muscle, which can be hard for a female because of yeah. the media and what they think body image should look like. But every time they allow us to spend time doing that and then they cut again down the road, it's always a completely different story. Yeah. And one, one thing I do want to highlight here, by the way, um, is, you know, a lot of the pushback we got to the initial article was not really pushback to the article. It was pushback to an overextension of what the article might indicate. So like there was no place in any of the articles uh, or any of the follow-up conversations where we would say, you must get to a really high body fat level to achieve any hypertrophy at all. Or uh, the typical lifter should push to be 20, 25, 30, 35% body fat. Uh, or it's a bad idea to stay lean for someone who simply just prefers to stay lean. So the biggest thing, like when I wrote this article, I thought a lot of people would perceive it as being very empowering because it would indicate that you, there are more acceptable body fat levels on the table for a lifter who wants to be successful. You know, uh, I think if you want to kind of push to those higher levels and see if you can get a little bit more hypertrophy out of your training, this empowers you to do that without feeling like you're impairing your hypertrophy due to insulin sensitivity or, or inflammation or anything like that. But a lot of people who there, there were a lot of people who read the article and they were like, I like staying lean. I said, that's terrific. You should <laughs> like, like if you want to stay lean, then absolutely do it. You're not, you're not necessarily losing much in, in the process there, but you know, the, the people who I think really stand to benefit from maybe changing their approach, you know, is people who are training to maximize their hypertrophy but every time they get to a certain number on the scale, they have that mental battle that causes them to, to then cut. And they're like, I think a lot of people justified that by saying, well, uh, maybe this is actually holding me back. I better cut just to be safe. So 
uh, a lot of people who read the article, they were, they were like, well, does this mean I need to get to, to a higher body fat level in order to achieve hypertrophy? That, that's not what we're indicating, but we are indicating that if you want to gain some weight uh, in order to facilitate hypertrophy, there's no reason that you need to restrict yourself to staying under 12% or 15 or 18% body fat, because we just don't have the evidence to suggest that that uh, actually starts to impair hypertrophy. Uh, and actually, like, like I said, uh, I think if you wanted to be, if your goal was to be the most muscular drug-free lifter on the planet, you, you probably aren't going to do that at 6% body fat. Yeah. And you're probably not going to do it at 9% body fat. You know, could you do it at 16? Uh, maybe, but like when we look at who are the most muscular athletes walking this planet, who could even try to claim being natural, it's people who are not shredded, uh, because at a certain point that low energy availability, uh, it can have a limiting factor. Yeah. So one of the things that this made me, I was already kind of, uh, I mean, and you know, this over the last, I mean, probably decade. I mean, ever since I can remember, it's been funny how insulin sensitivity was so important. Um, even glucose disposal agents. And I remember dumping cinnamon on everything I ate. And it was just like all these different things and the timing for insulin sensitivity, staying lean for insulin sensitivity. Um, and this is kind of just another shot at that idea of like, maybe it's not as big of a deal. Um, I think there's obviously health benefits to making sure you're not insulin resistant, but I think, uh, and I, I believe we had a conversation about this before. It's like, well, if, if you're strength training and you're eating well, I don't, it's not as big of a concern as you think it is, but did this just reassure your ideas on that and, and saying that it's really not that important? Yeah. I mean, my overarching premise with this, um, this project is that I don't make any assumptions going into it about what your goal is. And I don't think I should tell you what your goal is, you know? And so I think a lot of people with this conversation there, the, the argument was always, well, you, you ought to stay lean at all phases of your lifting career because you should want to be lean. You know, like I think a lot of times the people who really argue in favor of this position, whether they acknowledge it or not, they kind of assume that everyone should want to be lean. And I don't make that assumption. Like, I, I don't know if you're coming to me and you're like, I want to be the greatest sumo wrestler that ever lived. You're not going to do that at 11% body fat, right? You want to be a, a professional defensive tackle. You're not doing it at 8% body fat. So that's the biggest thing is I don't make any assumption about what your goal is. Uh, we're just looking at the data here. So if you come to me and say, Eric, I want to maximize my longevity. I want to maximize my health and wellness in the time I have on this planet, then I'm not going to say to bulk to 35% body fat as a, as a male, because now you've identified to me what your goal is. So I would never say like, oh, there's no deleterious effect of bulking to, you know, particular body fat ranges. This was a very specific question. Does it impair hypertrophy or P ratios? I have no evidence believe, to believe that it would. But to, to answer this question, uh, you know, so what does that tell us about insulin sensitivity? Uh, I think it tells us a few things. So high body fat, without question, independently uh, ha has a relationship with, uh, with insulin sensitivity. If, if you reach a state of elevated adiposity, high body fat storage, that can impair your insulin sensitivity, increase insulin resistance to an extent. And uh, I see no reason to believe that that would 
unfavorably impact, you know, hypertrophy or training, but there, there are certainly health ramifications that are unfavorable there. Uh, and, and so I, I don't think insulin sensitivity is something that we need to meticulously manage uh, for our performance or, uh, you know, our, our lifting related goals. Um, but I, I think uh, the health conscious individual who's focusing on maximizing health and lifespan and, and general wellness, I, th I think it's definitely a metric that could be uh, adjusted or, or modified, you know? So one of the ways we do that is just by exercising. So if we look at uh, someone with 30% body fat who is totally sedentary versus someone with the same body fat who exercises regularly, we can expect better insulin sensitivity in the person who exercises regularly. Um, so that's one thing, but then of course we can also modify body composition, uh, try to lose some of the excess adiposity to try to put insulin back, uh, insulin sensitivity back into, uh, more optimal ranges for health and wellness. So it, it's not that it's something that should never be modified or dealt with. I just don't see a lot of relevance when it specifically pertains to lifting. And I think one of the things, this is just reckless speculation on my part. It could be true. It could be very dumb. Uh, so I like to always put that caveat when I'm just speculating, but part of me wonders if the intense interest in dealing with glycemic control and insulin sensitivity and insulin resistance and things like that, part of me wonders if that's just an offshoot from the non-natural bodybuilding world. Uh, so I believe personally that that's kind of why people got really into manipulating sodium and potassium in the drug-free world is because like all the not drug-free bodybuilders, you know, uh, because of some of the drugs they were using, they, they had to deal with this kind of extra water retention. So you know, the diuretics and things like that got really big in like the non-drug tested bodybuilding. And that, that kind of became like, oh, maybe we should all be worried about manipulating all this stuff close to stage time with, with fluid intake and sodium, potassium. Part of me wonders if because of the, the high dose use of insulin and the high dose use of growth hormone in the bodybuilding world, I wonder if there was a damn good reason for them to be, to be very focused on glycemic regulation. And I wonder if that just kind of bled over into the general fitness consciousness. Um, but, but I, I've never really worked with a client where, uh, I've said, Oh, you know what the missing thing is here? The thing that we're overlooking is we need to go in and manipulate your insulin sensitivity. I, I I've never run into that situation where it was something that was making or breaking, our fitness related progress. But, you know, one of my biggest things as a coach is, uh, this is a, a brash oversimplification, but I'm way more interested in finding solutions than problems. And so like, you know, if, if a client were to say, I believe I'm having hypoglycemic episodes, uh, or symptoms that seem like hypoglycemia, or if a client said, I went to my doctor for a routine checkup and, uh, looks like my fasting blood glucose is really high. Now, now we have a reason to say, oh, let's talk insulin sensitivity, whether it's for wellness or for, you know, making sure that we're not having glycemic, uh, hypoglycemic episodes, which is not what we want. You know, so there, there are reasons that would come up, but I, I don't see a reason to get really fixated on the management of insulin sensitivity until we've got a reason uh, to really have insulin sensitivity, uh, 
in our in our crosshairs as as a focal point. I think that uh, I think your speculation is one hundred percent on point. I would agree completely. Um, in fact, when I did my first physique show, I worked with an enhanced bodybuilder coach, and he's open about it. But I did I manipulated sodium, potassium, diuretics. I was natural, you know, and so I did all those things because that's what he told me to do. And so I was under the impression as a 21 year old physique athlete that that's just what you do is you manipulate these things. Um, and it actually wasn't until I went down the rabbit hole of, of finding, uh, I think back then it was YouTube videos of Lane Norton and Eric Helms. I started really going down the rabbit hole of reverse dieting and all these things and salt and uh, manipulation not being healthy for natural lifters. Um, and I do think that rubs off because I can even, and I, I don't drop names, but I can think of people who are really big on some of these topics and they're clearly enhanced, but they're teaching it to a wide population. Um, and I think that this, the, where the miscommunication is, is between them doing those things and talking about even having everyday people who want to lose weight, constantly checking their blood glucose and pricking themselves. And which is probably unnecessary because most people who ask questions about, is this important? They're already sleeping well, eating well, losing body fat, training hard. You don't have to worry about it. Um, and then there's the other crowd that might not be enhanced, but they're intermittent fasting, keto carnivore gurus who are promoting these things, saying that the key is this insulin sensitivity that these low carb diets give you. Um, and again, like you said, if somebody's completely sedentary, maybe a low carb diet is a great route to go, but they're promoting it to the fitness community, which usually they are training as well. So, I mean, is there any tie over to fat loss even? Uh, not, not that I've seen. Uh, I, I've never seen a compelling reason to believe that, you know, two similar approaches, but one that really focuses on trying to enhance insulin sensitivity. Uh, you know, I've, I've never seen that one outperforms the, you know, when you look at the all the meta analyses on low carb versus low fat diets and, you know, which one seems to work out. They both seem to do fine. Um, you know, so I, I just don't see much of a reason to, to get, uh, really meticulous about modifying or manipulating it. And I would also say like, I have a, a lot of respect for scope of practice limitations. And so what I can tell you is this, if, if you're working with me, and we get to a spot where we have healthy eating habits, good sleep habits, uh, good exercise habits. We've, you know, reduced body fat down within, you know, uh, you know, a, a level that, that is correlated with good cardiometabolic health. If we're doing all those things well, and we have a glycemic control problem, we need an endocrinologist. That, that's a pathology. You know, we, we've got some type of beta cell dysfunction that seems to be unrelated to your physical activity and body fat level. Uh, we need, we need intervention at that point. We need help from a medical professional. I, I've not seen people who get all those habits in order, get down to a really healthy body weight and then say, you know what, I, I have, uh, I, I have, uh, you know, very bad insulin resistance. And the one weird trick is we just need to do this weird little dietary adjustment or manipulation. I've, I've never run into that. Uh, usually, uh, if there is still some, uh, pervasive issue with glycemic control, when we've got all those other things in check, it, it's probably, uh, something that requires a clinical diagnosis and some kind of more formal intervention. And then those things exist, but they're not, you don't go to your personal trainer for, uh, you know, an issue of that nature, in, in my opinion. Um, 
And, and one other thing I want to say on this topic of insulin resistance, insulin sensitivity, and body fat level in athletes, I don't want to give the false impression that there's no, no trade-off here. Uh, so like, for example, I told you, someone comes to me with a, a question or, you know, a coaching inquiry, I make no assumption about what their goal is. And so someone could come to me and say, I want to be the best defensive lineman nose tackle that, that's ever played the game, right? They're probably going to be at least 23% body fat at that, like at the minimum, I would expect, uh, you know, just based on the demands of the sport. Now, they probably have better insulin sensitivity than someone with the same body fat level who is not training hard and playing a sport and lifting several times a week. You know, there's going to be a beneficial impact of the activity level and the training, but it's not to say that it's without risk uh, and without deleterious impact on cardiometabolic health. So when I was working on my PhD, we, we did, um, we published a paper related to cardiometabolic disease risk in retired professional football players, American football players. And when you look at that literature of people who played American football professionally, uh, particularly looking at offensive and defensive linemen who based on the sport are going to have body fat percentages, typically in the twenties and thirties, uh, there are higher risks of cardiometabolic disease for them relative to the general population. So it's not like, yeah, you can get up to, you know, 20, 25, 30, 35% body fat as a, as a, a male. And as long as you're training, it's all good. That, that's not necessarily the case. We still see, you know, there's prevalence data indicating that a lot of college and professional football linemen do have insulin resistance. They, they meet that criteria for diagnosis. That's uh, typically a deleterious thing for, for chronic disease risk. So uh, you know, I don't want to give the impression that it, that it's completely a non-factor for lifters. The only impression I wish to, to give is that insulin resistance is probably not holding you back in your lifting pursuits. Uh, but, but if, if again, if, if your focus is on uh, supporting long-term health and wellness and mit mitigating chronic disease risk, then it is something that ought to be looked at. But like I said, my my go-to uh, strategy for it, I have insulin resistance and I wish to have it no longer. It's going to be getting back to the basics. Let, let's manipulate body composition. Let's get active. Let's train and let's make sure our eating and sleep sleeping habits are uh, compatible with that goal. And correct me if I'm wrong, but if somebody is on a higher carb approach and they are losing body fat and practicing these healthy things, they're going to see a decline in insulin sensitivity despite eating plenty of carbs and not doing a low carb diet. It's because they're so, so essentially insulin sensitivity is also tied to body fat levels just as much as necessarily like the macros you're consuming. Right. It, it they, they will st still see an enhancement of insulin sensitivity. Yes. So uh, yeah, if you're a person who has elevated adiposity and you're going to lose some weight uh, that is going to, that is expected to enhance your insulin sensitivity whether you're on a high carb diet, high fat diet, doesn't, doesn't really seem to matter that much. The, the much more important predictor there is your body composition, your activity level. So yeah. Um, and so th that's why I brought up the, the meta analyses of like high carb versus uh, high fat or low carb versus low fat. Usually people talk about weight loss diets in mm -hmm. terms of what they're restricting, not what they're uh, yeah. contributing, but 
low fat, low carb diets, uh, they, they seem to have pretty similar outcomes when we look at their impacts on, uh, you know, weight loss, fat loss, uh, mitigation of that chronic disease risk, you know, in a hypocaloric circumstance or, or, or situation. So, yeah, um, it, it just, it, a lot of times, the, you know, people who promote the low carb diets, they say, no, this is perfect because aside from the fat loss, you're keeping carbs low. It's going to, you know, have a huge impact on insulin sensitivity. And that's really the game changer. There's not strong evidence uh, to support that line of thinking. And then it's one of the reasons why I always tell people if, if you're looking into a style of dieting and there's a lot of claims, whether they're false or true, uh, do the research to see if a calorie deficit will create those same exact claims or benefits. I mean, even not that I don't want to keep shooting at intermittent fasting because there's nothing wrong with that if people like to do that. But um, a lot of the health benefits can also be arrived from going into a calorie deficit as well as the cons, like the negative stressors that come from intermittent fasting also come when you go into a deficit for a long period of time. And I think it's yeah. important for people to do that research before. Well, that's a great point that ties into our last topic, because when you look at the P ratio stuff, a lot of the evidence that's being used to say, oh, P ratios are, uh, you know, high body fat levels impair your P ratio. They blunt hypertrophy. They're, they're drawn from studies in people with obesity who are sedentary, have excess adiposity and are also, you know, on high caloric intakes with a dietary eating pattern that promotes inflammation. Uh, and so they're looking at these people and saying, oh, look at what happens when you have high body fat, you have insulin resistance and high inflammation. But if we took that person and put them in a modest calorie deficit and got them active and exercising and training, a lot of that insulin resistance, a lot of that high inflammation status is going to be uh, reversed and attenuated at that body fat level, just from getting on a training program, revisiting the healthy eating habits and behaviors, uh, and, and adopting a better dietary pattern. So again, it's the same kind of thing where like, yeah, losing fat will certainly impact their insulin sensitivity and the inflammation status, but we, we can also do a lot there without, uh, reducing body fat level as well. So yeah, whenever you're looking at, uh, those types of interventions and, and it's like, well, this reduces, inflammation or it enhances insulin sensitivity, a, a good question to ask yourself, like you said, is, well, what else does that? You know, would, would, would losing fat help? Would just being in a deficit help? Would uh, just adopting a, a less inflammatory eating pattern help? Like there's a, there's a lot of ways we can do things. And that, that comes back to my point on strength phases for hypertrophy focused lifters is like, well, some people, look at that evidence that says, Oh, low carb, low fat, they both work. And they say, damn it. I really like, you know, the, the narrative associated with, with low fat or low carb being the best way. Uh, cause the mechanisms sound good and they make sense to me. It's intuitive, but I look at something like that and I say, awesome. You know, that means if I've got a client who's like, yeah, I want to achieve all these goals, but I just really hate carbs. I say, fine, we'll, we'll, we'll go low carb, higher fat. And if they say the opposite, then we'll do the opposite. And if both avenues lead us to success, then as a coach, that means I can win two different ways instead of having to insist that we take the hard way. Yeah, I think uh, I've often said the more I, because I'm not doing research, I'm, I'm just trying to read what you guys review and what Brandon gives me and everything. And over the years, the more I've 
read and learned, the more I realized that uh, it, it's science proves the simplicity quite often. And I think that it's almost as if the answer isn't novel enough for people to be satisfied with, right? And that's why like a lot of times these things come out and these headlines and everybody's excited. And then there's people from uh, really like your circle and mass and, and everybody in the evidence-based community that comes out and goes, well, no, it's actually just energy balance and calorie deficit. And, and a lot of times it leads to that, like eat enough protein, put your calories in a good place. Let's figure out carbs and fats based on what you prefer and what your goals are. And you're going to be fine. There's no magic tricks. There's no sexy new novel thing that we're going to find. It's just, it's pretty simple. I think chrononutrition was probably the first thing in a while for me that was like, oh, that's actually pretty interesting. It's kind of flipping intermittent fasting around and nutrient timing maybe does matter a little bit, you know? And, um, and I've loved that. And, and Danny Len, if anybody hasn't listened, I did a podcast with Danny, uh, after you guys published the article with him, that was fantastic. Um, but that was a topic that made me kind of go, Oh, I mean, it's not challenging the caloric balance, but it's definitely the first thing to be like, Oh, like, okay. Something else kind of matters a little bit here. Yeah. Well, it's funny though. Cause I, I, I often think about, um, Cause yeah, w- when I first heard about like chrononutrition and how it kind of ties in with circadian rhythm, right? Mm-hmm. At first you're like, ah, that sounds kind of gimmicky. Sounds kind of like biohacky. Yeah. Uh, Very. And one of the things that is important to keep in mind is like, imagine that you are a biologist. I don't know if a biologist would do this kind of work. I don't know, but you have happened upon a new species. Okay. And you're trying to characterize that species and explain just its most basic uh, uh, descriptive qualities, right? A few things you might ask yourself, does it eat plants or meat or both? You know, just like basic, is it an herbivore, carnivore, whatever? Mm -hmm. One of the most basic things you would ask yourself, what is its circadian pattern? Like, is it nocturnal? Uh, you know, like how many hours a day does it sleep on average? Like these are basic characteristics of an organism that are hugely impactful <laughs> for their physiology. But for some reason, yeah, like I'm, I was the same way. It struck my ear and I was like, ah, it sounds like really gimmicky and kind of biohacky, but like, yeah, circadian rhythms are a hugely important distinguishing factor of like any organism. But for some reason we're like, ah, that sounds weird. <laughs> Uh, and I don't know why that that was my first impression, but no, I, I think Danny did a, a really good job with that article. And I think there is something to be said of, you know, whether or not you tie it into your nutrition is up to how, what level of nuance you want to take to your diet. But without question, uh, circadian rhythmicity is important. And I think it's important to really critically revisit um, you know, whether or not you're, you're supporting your own wellness with regards to, you know, if, if you're like just wired to be a morning person, but you're just forcing yourself because of work to stay up all hours of the night, just caffeine, like on an IV drip and you're getting terrible fragmented sleep and you're sleeping in a, a hot, bright, noisy situation, like you're not going to be feeling good because that's not how, human beings are designed to work, you know? So yeah, I, I think, uh, I think like you said, a lot of times the research points us toward more simplicity, um, which I, I think another way to view that is it points us toward, uh, acknowledging that we're pretty damn good at being humans. Like we're pretty robust. So 
You put a human being on a, a vegan diet, we do pretty good. You put it on a diet that's not vegan, we still do pretty good. Uh, you know, put high carb, we're fine. High fat, we're fine. Like we're pretty adaptable and pretty robust. Uh, but every now and then you do find those little pieces of nuances uh, in, in the research that's useful, right? So like there's a meta-analysis this month uh, indicating that, um, you know, uh, pretty intense fat restriction does seem to be associated with lower testosterone levels. Um, now the knee-jerk reaction is, you know, everybody go on keto today, if not yesterday, but that's not the real take home, but the take home is we can use that. So if you're working with a client doing nutrition, fat loss phase, they're not super, super shredded yet. So we shouldn't expect, you know, major symptoms that are like hypogonadal, like really low testosterone. If you notice like, you know what, we're not in a big enough deficit and we're not shredded enough that we should be expecting low testosterone symptoms. And we are restricting fat pretty hard maybe we borrow some calories from carbs and shift them to fat. Like, so we can use the research to, to kind of build up the toolbox and say, okay, there might be something we can intervene on here that might be helpful, you know, because nobody likes those hypogonadal symptoms of low testosterone. Nobody likes having low energy, low libido, things like that. So the research is there to give us some of the guidance, some of the pointers and things like that. But like you said, more often than not, it leads us towards several avenues to success rather than very few. Yeah, really well said. Um, and I could keep going. We're, we're already over an hour, so I want to respect your time. Uh, but those, I mean, we hammered those topics really well. So I'm, I'm really happy with what we did there. I do want to give you a second to uh, just mention what you guys are coming up with. I know, um, it hasn't come out yet, but you guys have been talking about it a little bit on the stronger by science podcast, um, which I'm a huge fan of and, and constantly listen to. So I wanted to make a point to bring it up because it's pretty damn cool and you seem pretty excited about it. So can you just like fill us in and give the listeners some hype of what's, what you guys are working on? Yeah. Yeah. We're really excited about it. So, um, we didn't get a chance to get to metabolic adaptation, but as you know, a couple of the topics that really excite me are, how metabolic rate changes over time based on overfeeding and underfeeding, um, you know, metabolic rate changes in response to weight loss, things like that. So uh, that was a big portion of my research during my PhD was really understanding changes in, in metabolism and energy expenditure. And another thing like we've talked about uh, throughout this podcast at certain points is optimizing macronutrient balance, you know, so for, for a specific goal, should you be in a deficit or a surplus? Should you be on a high carb or a lower carb approach? What should your protein be like? Those are the things that really get me excited and have guided a lot of my content over the last several years. Uh, and so we finally are working on a nutrition app and it's going to be out soon ish. We're going to, you know, obviously have a lot of announcements as we get closer. Um, but, but we're really excited about it. We teamed up with a really talented development team. Uh, you know, Greg and I have, have been kind of, uh, we, we've been doing a lot of alpha testing and really putting our fingerprints all over it, making sure that it's, it's doing exactly what we want behind the screen. Uh, so yeah, we, we've, it's basically just a culmination of all our, uh, all the science we've been, you know, up to our ears in uh, over the last several years about energy expenditure and nutrition. And the app basically, um, is a very, very, 
efficient, convenient food tracking app. So um, it's got incredible functionality when it comes to just tracking your food throughout the day. It calculates your macros. You know, you can use it to keep tabs on your meal timing and things like that. Uh, so it's a great food tracker and food logger, but there's also functionality where it kind of coaches you along. So you put in information about yourself, where you're at, what your goals are, and it continues to update recommendations for calorie intake and not just that, but also macronutrient distribution. So uh, it's a really comprehensive nutrition app. We're stoked about it. And I, I really do feel like, uh, you know, with mass, we review these studies every single month and with Stronger by Science, we got the podcast with the articles, uh, all the research uh, as a grad student. It really feels like this is kind of the, the culmination of all that training and literature review and, and, and research reviewing is like being able to put it all together into like this thing will incorporate that information and guide you along. So yeah, needless to say, we are stoked about it. And, you know, we'll certainly have uh, plenty of announcements when we're, when we're ready to let it go right now, we're just killing ourselves, uh, uh, meticulously agonizing over the details as we continue to alpha test. But if you're, if you're interested in where we're at in development, I can tell you, uh, right now, Greg and I use it daily. It's totally functional on our phones. So we're at least far enough along that, that that's where we're at now. It's just kind of the finishing touches. Yeah. Very cool, man. I'm excited to see it. And, uh, I'll, I'll link, I mean, we mentioned quite a few different things. So I'm going to link mass. I'll link stronger by science, uh, the blog and the podcast, as well as the uh, specific article with Danny Lennon, since we brought that up. Um, but for everybody listening who constantly sends in questions, uh, you know, we do one research review Q and a per month. So we answer three, four or five at most, if Brandon can squeeze them in, um, that's all Greg and Eric do. So if you're into that stuff, please go check it out. I recommend mass to everybody, man, all the time. Um, I think I have a lifetime subscription. I was like, whatever the, like most, the, the longest thing I can do, I'm going to do that because as a coach, it's, it's basically my go-to place when I get questions or I want to create content on a topic. And I'm like, I just want to double check that I'm wording this accurately because you know, the bigger my following and reach grows, the more people can try to twist your words. And, and you're like, okay, I got to be careful with what I'm putting out there. Um, even when I feel confident. So it's a great resource for me to have. And I recommend people to it all the time, but um, everybody, I'll put a link to that. Uh, it's extremely affordable for the amount of information there. It's, it's, ridiculously cheap in my opinion there's just so much value so i'll link all that in the show notes for you guys listening um and eric man it's been great catching up and i really appreciate you coming on yeah thanks for having me and uh you mentioned your growth it's been wild i mean uh the last time i was on the show it feels like it was about 20 years ago but man <laughs> you, you've been doing a, a really incredible job and more importantly you've been helping a lot of people so I, i'm i'm really happy to observe your success from the outside you've been doing a great job Thank you, man. That means a lot to me. Really. Thank you. So, well, good, dude. I'm going to link all that. Uh, again, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Awesome. Thanks, man. So